Well, hey, once again, happy Father's Day to the dads that are here. We're, we're grateful that everyone is joining us, whether here or online. And dads, we know that there's a lot of things that you do on a regular basis, and you've probably got some fun traditions or things that you like to do with your kids. Kids, the same thing for you, right? There's some things that you just love to do with your dads. And in my house, there's this one thing that, that my kids love to do. They ask for it almost every night, and it's sort of a dad thing. Mom does it too, um, but, but they're all about doing this with dad. And that's this little tradition that we've come to call tackle time. And the name describes exactly what it is. It is tackle time with our kids. And so what happens is they go upstairs before bed, they get in the game room, and they bring dad to the middle, and then all of them attack me at once. And, you know, it's just sort of this big wrestling match. And as they're getting a little bit bigger, they're getting a little bit stronger, which means they're getting a little bit rougher, which means I'm getting a little bit more sore, right? It's just sort of how it goes. It's tackle time at our house. But sometimes tackle time starts before dad gets upstairs. And so I'll hear it going on. I'll sneak upstairs and we'll get to the top of the stairs. And there have been moments where Chelsea and I have gotten up there together and we see the boys just sort of going at it with one another. And, and they're wrestling and they're tackling each other. And it's sort of fun to watch. And it, it gets increasingly rougher the longer that it lasts. And Chelsea will sort of elbow and say, hey, you might need to step in here. I'm like, no, 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 let's just see what happens, right? No, you need to get in the middle of this. And it's like, no, we're just going to see what happens. But every now and then, our four-year-old, who's very brave, very strong and very energetic, uh, will get up on the top of the couch like a professional wrestler. And I see the elbows start to come out, and I know he's about to go off the top rope onto one of his, his older brothers, and I just know, and he's got the elbow out right now, right? I just know that I need to get involved at that moment, right? This is not good. This is not going to end well, right? We've got to a certain point, and now if dad doesn't step in, if dad doesn't get involved, somebody's going to get hurt, and it's not going to go well. And I think that we all have those moments in life where we're watching something or we see something and all of a sudden the elbow comes out and we all are like, okay, you know what? I need to step in here. I need to get in the middle of this. I need to get involved. Sitting on the sideline doesn't work anymore. It's going to work out bad. And sometimes that's an inward look where we sort of notice ourselves. We might be going in the wrong direction spiritually. We might be going in the wrong direction physically or financially or whatever. And we just sort of need to check ourselves and say, okay, if I don't step in and self-correct this, things are going to work out bad. But a lot of times, God uses his people, God uses the church to be that voice in someone else's life as well. Where we see something that's not healthy, we see something that's not right, we see something that's not going to end up well, and we just know, you know, God is prodding us and pushing us and calling us to step in to point people back in the right direction. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to see that he does that this morning, and he gives us this incredible model for that. And as we read and see where he steps into the lives of other people, I want you to think about it through this specific lens. Nehemiah doesn't step in for himself. He doesn't step in for his glory or for anything that he can gain from what's going on. Every time we see Nehemiah stepping into the life of someone else, it's because of his love for God and he's passionate about the glory of God. And it's because he loves the people, like he genuinely cares about the people that he is stepping in and getting involved in their life, right? And it's clear by his life, all the things that he's done. So here's a quick recap of the, the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 13 is, is the final chapter. We're going to end it today. Let's make sure we all know how we got there. Back in chapter 1, Nehemiah hears what's going on in Jerusalem. He hears about the state of the city of God and the people of God, and he's sad, right? He's got sorrow. God 
God allows him to have this burden on his heart, and so he acts, he responds, he does something. We know that God placed it in his heart, this desire to build a wall, so Nehemiah goes back, and he gets the wall built. And once the wall is built, we realize that it wasn't just about a wall at at all, right? That it was about creating a space where the word of God would be prominent or a priority among the people of God. And that concept continues to roll around in my mind as I think about Nehemiah. He creates this space where the word of God can be shared and then lived out, right? So that's what happens there. And as the word of God is proclaimed to the people of God in chapters 9 and 10, we saw last week that the people committed themselves to God. They heard, okay, that's the word of God. We haven't been living that way. We need to refocus, recommit our lives back to God. And they did that, right? They had a written covenant and everything. They said specifically, God, we're going to follow your word, but we're going to follow it in these key areas. They wrote it down. Their leaders, their heads of family wrote it down. And they said, God, we are living this way from here on out. And as we talked about that this past week, a lot of people in here did that same thing. And send a note saying, hey, you know what? I, I have not been living the way that God calls me to. And, and this morning, I'm recommitting and pointing my life in the direction that God's called me to do that. And so as we head into chapter 13, what happens is, is Nehemiah has gone back to his old job. Remember, he wasn't in Jerusalem when all this started. He was, was way far away, the capital of Persia. He was working for the king. He was the cupbearer. So all this is done. The wall is done. The word of God is proclaimed. And it's been a long time. And now he goes back to the king. And in his absence, the people drifted away from God again. In his absence, the people began to do the things that they knew they weren't supposed to do. They began to do the things that they had committed and told God they wouldn't do. And after a while, Nehemiah leaves the king, again with the king's blessing, and he comes back to the city of Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he finds all of these things that are going on. And we're going to see throughout this chapter that Nehemiah steps in and he gets involved because he loves God. He's passionate about the glory of God and because he loves the people of God. So if you look now at Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1, uh, and these three verses happen before we get to the trouble. But they're good, and I think they're going to point us in the right direction here. Chapter 13, verse 1 says this. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned that curse into a blessing. Let me push pause right there. That's some history from the people of God. If you go back to Numbers chapter 22, this group of people specifically jumped in against the people of God and pronounced a a curse on them, right? They were active enemies of God. And so for the, the purity of the people of God and for the sake of their relationship with God, God said, hey, stay separate from them so they don't pull you away from me. So back to verse three, it says, as soon as the people heard the law, they heard what God had said, They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Very simple, what's going on here? Verse 1 says that they read the Bible, or the Word of God. They understood what it said. And if we look at verse 3, what happened? They obeyed it, right? And it's critical for them then, and it's very critical for us right here, right now, to, to read the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, and then to obey it, to live it out in our lives. That's our first point from God's word this morning, and that's simply that believers live out the Bible. Right? So followers of Jesus, the church family, should be a people that live out the word of God. If you fast forward to Jesus in the New Testament in John chapter 8, he says, truly you are my disciples 
if you do what I say, if you obey my teaching, right? A mark of a follower of Jesus is someone that lives out the word of God. And we're going to see that Nehemiah is all about that as we move forward. Look at verse 4. It says, now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of our God and who was related to Tobiah, that's going to be important in a minute, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. Okay, back to chapter 10. In chapter 10, one of the things that the people of God committed to specifically was proper worship. They said, hey, we're going to let the temple be a place of worship, and we're going to worship God the way that God has asked us to worship him. But if you look right here in chapter 13, over time there's been a drift. And, and in fact, the high priest himself turned from that commitment. He emptied out a room in the temple a room that was needed for the proper worship of God, a room where they kept the things that were needed as a part of their worship, and he gave that room away to a man named Tobiah, one of his relatives through marriage. We'll come back to that. And we've been in Nehemiah for a few weeks, and we've heard the name Tobiah before, right? By a thumbs up or a thumbs down, I just, I'm curious to make sure that we're all tracking here, was Tobiah a friend of God? Or an enemy of God? Come on, let me see it. Friend of God or enemy of God? You got it. Tobiah was an enemy of God. So think about what's going on here. Tobiah was one of the guys that, that spread lies. He spread rumors. He tried to get Nehemiah off the wall. He threatened to come in with other people, other armies, and kill kill the people of God who were trying to set up this wall and create this space where they could worship. And now this enemy of God, where's he living He's living in the temple. He's living in a room that was critical for the worship of God to happen. And because this enemy of God has moved in, what, what happens as a result? His presence and his influence in the temple caused the worship of God to stop. To stop. They brought an enemy in, gave him a spot. His presence, his influence caused worship to stop. And I want us to pay attention here because this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality that we can still face today. Right? It's a physical picture of something that still can happen today. When we move the wrong things in and pull the right things out of our heart, of our life, of our family, of our worship, what happens? The wrong things, the things that, that go opposed to, to God begin to take over. Right? When we move the right things out and the wrong things in, the wrong things begin to happen. In high school, uh, my senior year, I, it wasn't a very hard year. Um, I think I, I had an auto tech shop class for two periods of the day. I was an office aide. That means you don't do anything for a period of the day. And then I took a cooking class for my, my last period of the day. And if they still have cooking classes in high school, I say go for it because <laughs> it's a lot of fun. You won't learn much, but it was a lot of fun. And one day we had finished cooking something and it's all out on the counter. Our teacher's going down the road. Her deal was she would take a bite and she would say something nice. 
and then move on to the next thing. And she got to mine, and she took a bite of it, and she threw it up into the trash can. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? I just thought that she was being a little bit dramatic. And so then I took a bite, and I followed her by throwing it up immediately into the trash can. It was really, really bad. And after a little bit of discussion, we found out that I had put a half a cup of salt into my quiche. Um, And I just, I read it wrong or I did it wrong. I don't know what happened. I put a half a cup of salt in there and it it wasn't supposed to be in there, right? And so I put the wrong thing in and what happened to the whole quiche? Made you throw up, right? It was bad. It, it, It ruined everything else that was going on in here. And that's the problem in Nehemiah 13. Worship of God has stopped. It stopped because the people of God have allowed a wrong influence, the wrong person into the house of God, and and his influence overtook everything. So we need to look at what happens. How do they fix this? Look at verse 8. It says, and I was, this is Nehemiah talking, I was very angry. He's passionate about the glory of God. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave the orders, and they cleansed the chamber. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And if you look down at verse 11, it says, then, so, so what he's done first is he's confronted the, the outsider that's come in that needed to go out. He did that first, and then look what he does. I confronted the officials. Now he confronts the people of God and says, why is the house of God forsaken? Listen, all of it through this lens. Remember, Nehemiah loves God and he loves people here, so he doesn't let them continue down a way that's going to be destructive. He sees the little kid's elbow coming out, and he says, this isn't going to end well. I need to step in and get involved. He confronts the person that shouldn't be there. He takes action. He confronts the people of God that let this happen, and he says, we need to get back on track. And if you continue reading, you're going to see that what happens next is they don't kick Nehemiah out. They don't get mad at him for stepping in. They don't get mad at him and say, this is none of your business. No, when he got involved and pointed people back in the right direction, the response is worship, right? We see them worshiping, bringing the things that that are needed for worship back into the temple. He sets them straight, and they respond once again by filling the temple with the presence of worship. Our second point, God's word is this, is believers are passionate about worshiping God, right? We are passionate people about worshiping God right here, right now, in this room, but not just in this room, but the way that we live our lives. Believers are passionate about worshiping God. But when Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem, unfortunately, that the temple worship problems weren't the only things that he found. In chapter 10, one of the other commitments that the people made was to the Sabbath. They were going to set the Sabbath apart and let it be a holy time for them, just like God had called them to do. But when we get back to chapter 13 and Nehemiah gets into the city, he realizes the people are like, nah, Never mind, we're not really going to do that. We're going to do what we want instead. And so look what he does in verse 17. Again, it says, I confronted, that's the second time we've seen that word, the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So for the people of God, right right here in Nehemiah, the Sabbath was a set-aside time to know God, to focus on Him. And as they did that, as they set that time aside, the Sabbath effectively set the people of God apart from the rest of the world. 
Israel would stop what they were doing every Friday night until Saturday night, 24-hour stretch. And as they rested from their work, they had the opportunity to take time to know the Word of God and, and of course, to know God. And, and here we see they had stopped doing that. The, the doors to the city are open. There's trade going on. There's work going on. All of these things have crept in and prevented them from observing the Sabbath. Here's what's happening. They've been swept up by the culture of their day. And they begin to live like everyone else in their day, like all the nations and all the people around them. And if you were to look at them, you would see no difference between the people of God and the people that didn't believe in God that lived in that exact same area. No difference between believers and everyone else. I hope and pray that would never be said of us Right, what, what happened here is they got busy. They got busy. They allowed the concerns of, of the world to creep in and take time that they had set aside for God. Has that ever happened to you? Where you've got time set aside for God, time to set aside to know God, to walk with God and the things of the world, the cares of the world, the concerns of the world creep in and begin to steal back some of that time. It, it happens to me literally this week as I'm, I'm in my, my office and I've got my Bible open. I've got these commentaries open. I've got a notepad out and my computer's there and I'm taking these notes and I'm writing it. Literally, this is no joke, right after I typed that sentence about our culture creeping in and stealing time set aside for God, my phone started blowing up. All of these random text messages about all of these random things and it was like God was saying, hey, listen, you too. Turn that off. Get it out of here. You've set aside this time for something else. Let it go and focus in on the Word of God. Listen, there's always something, always something fighting for that time. And if we're not careful, the concerns, not necessarily bad things, just, just things, the concerns of our life is going to steal the time that we have set aside to grow in our relationship with God, to know God. So think about your life. Think about your rhythm Think about your family. Think about the things that you do and the ways that you are. And let me encourage you, all of us, to guard time in our lives to focus on God, to think about the Word of God, to teach the Word of God to our kids and to those in our family, to set aside time for worship again like we're doing now because we, our world is full of small things and massive things that are going to fight for that time. Our work, our school, our sports, our friends, our relaxation, all of those kinds of things. And let me just encourage us today, never let our work take away from reading the Bible with our family. Don't let the fast pace of, of your family's life tempt you to, to skip church or to do other things. Don't jam your day so full of things that you don't spend time thinking about the Word of God. I love this quote. I'm not sure where it came from. It's, tell your time where to go or you're going to wonder where it went. Nehemiah saw what was going on with the Sabbath. He saw that people weren't focused on God. He saw that the things of this world were stealing that time away from the people of God, focusing on God, and he loved them enough to jump in. He loved them enough to get involved. And we might say that he went to extreme measures. If you continue reading in chapter 13, he literally like, like locks the gates and the doors of the city shut. He keeps people in, he keeps people out, and he says, you're going to focus here on God. And he can do that because he, he built a wall around the city and put gates and doors there. So he locked it down so that 
there was this focus on God. Our third point is this. Believers live a life focused on God. So you and me as followers of Jesus, our life, our rhythm, our pace, our days, our weeks, our months, our years need to have this pattern where we focus in on God and grow in our relationship with him. And then finally, in, in chapter 13, as, as this book comes to a close, we're reminded of something that's still critically true today, and that's this. Relationships matter. They matter. Believers are passionate, must be passionate about godly relationships. Look at verse 23, and, and we'll see what's going on. It says, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, but they could not speak the language of Judah, only the language of each of the people. Again, back to this time of commitment before God in chapter 10. One of the things the people of God committed to was to, to not intermarry with the people of the surrounding areas, religions, and regions. And this had nothing to do with the ethnicity of the people. It had nothing to do with, with how they looked or how they, they spoke or anything like that. God put that in place. Again, all the way back in Deuteronomy and Numbers, he put that in place because the people that surrounded the people of God did not worship God. They were enemies of God, people like Tobiah. And we saw the problem that that happened when he came into the family and into the temple, right? Not about anything else other than whether or not they worshiped God. We can't forget Ruth, right, who was outside of the family of God. But in Ruth chapter 1, we see she devoted herself to God, and she became a part of the family of God. We can go all the way back to Moses and see that Moses married a Cushite woman who was brought into the family of God. This has to do with our hearts and whether the people that we enter into a relationship, whether they're going to push us closer to Jesus or pull us further away from Jesus. And marriage is an incredibly intimate relationship. Nothing in our life, no relationship in our life shapes us and influences us, us more than our marriage. And here we find the people of God marrying people who are self-professed enemies of God, right? The people of God marrying people that do not believe in God and actively work against the plans of God. How do you think that's going to work out? Not well. Everybody wants a smooth marriage, right? A happy marriage, a marriage that doesn't have fights and, and arguments, right? People just, just want to live smooth in their marriage relationship. And a big part of that is compromise. It's compromise. The air conditioner, where you're going to eat dinner, what show you're going to watch on TV, all of those things, right? Marriage is about compromise. And here, when we see the people of God married to the people that, that are enemies of God, the compromise that unfortunately appears to be made is the people of God just decide to sort of go light on the whole God thing, right? They just sort of back off, and they say, you know what? We're just going to do what you want us to do. We're going to go the way that, that you want us to go. And, and as we think about that in this marriage relationship and then this sort of giving up on our walk with God and going a new direction, we've got to think, was that good for the people that drifted away and walked away from God? Was that good for the kids and the families of the people that walked away from God? No, of course not. We see right here that they don't even speak the language the Word of God is taught in anymore. And I read this quote this week, uh, and, and it was great about this specific thing right here. He said about these verses, a single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. A single generation's compromise could undo the work 
of centuries. Just a reminder of the importance in investing in that next generation of followers of Jesus. Our relationships impact our relationship with Christ. Our kids' relationships impact their relationship with Christ. As a believer in Jesus, let me encourage you to be passionate about the right relationships for your family. Find relationships that push you, encourage you, and build you closer to Jesus. Nehemiah saw that the people of God had had entered into relationships that were pulling them away from Jesus, right? And so he stepped in. He got involved because he loves God and he loves the people of God. He stepped in and was passionate to ensure that they re-entered into right relationships. And, And that's what what he did here at the end of chapter 13, right? At the end of chapter 13, we've got to be passionate about right relationships. So as we read this concluding chapter, I want to point out these four things, right? There's four very practical things that we can do as we leave here that can be a part of our life on a regular basis. And if we do these things, right, that are prescribed here in God's word, we're going to continue to grow in our love relationship with Christ. That's living out the Bible. That's worshiping God. That's living focused in a busy world and pursuing right relationships. Those things, and we see it all right here that Nehemiah points the people of God back to ultimately so they can be driven back to God are critical for us. But I want us to take a step back, right? All of that's true. All of that's here in this chapter. But I want us to look at a bigger theme. Because throughout this entire chapter, what's Nehemiah doing? He sees the kid with the elbow, says this is not going the right direction, and Nehemiah is stepping in. Nehemiah is getting involved. In fact, the word that the Bible uses three times in this chapter is confronted. Nehemiah confronts people that are going the wrong direction. So we see now that our wall builder, Nehemiah, this guy that came in and got the city back on track, was a confrontational person because he loved God and the people of God. Every time he stepped in was because he loved those people in that city, and he wanted to see the best for them. And He knew that the best was going to be in that relationship with God. So a question for us is this. Do we love people? Do we love our church family enough to be confrontational when necessary? Think about that for a minute. Do we love our church family enough? Do we love believers? Do we love other followers of Jesus enough to realize when there's something going on in their life, to realize if there's a time they're going in the wrong direction, this is going to lead to destruction or going to lead to them or their family being pulled away from Christ. Do we love them enough to step in and say, hey, listen, listen, I love you, I care about you, God has something better for you. Let's talk about what's going on in your world and in your life right now. It's not natural, right? Most of us are, are a little bit passive most of us like things to be peaceful and easy and, and not messy, but, but clean and neat. Most people don't like to step in. Most people don't like to bring up hard things. Most people don't like to have those challenging conversations. Right? But we see here that, that we're called to. Right? Have you ever sat in a restaurant and eaten cold food because you didn't want to hurt the waiter's feelings by sending it back? Have you ever just eaten the wrong order because it, it came out and, and you didn't want to make a fuss about something? I pray that when it matters, that, that we, that our church family cares enough about one another to speak up, to encourage one another, to, to help, to all of us working together to help one another grow in our relationship with God, to live in a way that, that honors God. 
One of my favorite professors from seminary, Jim Hamilton, he wrote this in his commentary on Nehemiah, specifically about chapter 13. He says this, pulling it forward to us in our day and how we can live. He says, if you see bad behavior in the lives of whom you are in a covenant with in your church, you should confront them. If you see the ways that people are not living out or upholding the covenant they signed, you should confront them. You don't have to do what Nehemiah does, but listen to this. You can be a channel of God's love for his people. You can be a conduit of God's kindness. Listen, it's not loving to let people continue in a way that's going to pull them away from Jesus. It is not a kind thing to do to sit back and say nothing if people are walking in a way that leads to destruction. The New Testament calls it when we speak up like that, speaking the truth in love. And I hope that we can do that. Nehemiah's model here is three things, and then we'll wrap up with these. But, but in the context of, of the bigger chapter here, if we're to follow Nehemiah's pattern, if we're going to love our church family well, if we're going to be kind to one another, we'll do these three things. The first is this, let's get involved. Right? Don't be passive. Don't look away. Don't, don't, don't ignore things, but we'll get involved in the lives of other people. Follow the model from Nehemiah, and let's get involved. The second thing that we'll do is all of us as a church family is we'll take responsibility for one another. Right? Think about this. This isn't one person's job. Here, Nehemiah left the city, and what happened? What did the people of God do? They drifted away from God, right? But what, what if... What if everybody in the city of Jerusalem, what if all of the people of God sort of owned it and took responsibility and, and somebody spoke up and said, hey, you know, we shouldn't let Tobiah move into the temple. That's not his place, right? We need to stop that and continue to focus our worship on God. Think about the lives that are changed, the heartache that is saved, the sin that never happens. If everybody, all of the people of God owned that together and began to speak up into the lives of one another. We've got to remember that as a church family, this is all of our responsibility. When you become a member of Champion Forest and sign that membership covenant, one of the things that, that we all commit to is protecting the unity of our church and the witness and the reputation of our church. And, and part of that is just taking responsibility and jumping in and saying, hey, listen, right? Hey, listen, let's live in a way that honors Christ. And here's how I think that we can do that. It's, it's not just the job of the pastors or deacons or life group teachers. It's certainly our job, but it's all of our job as members of the body here. So get involved, take responsibility. And then the third thing that Nehemiah does is he loves courageously. We've got to love one another courageously. And let me explain what I mean. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 say this. A new command I give you. It's Jesus talking to his disciples. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not loving to let believers in our church family walk in a way that leads them away from Christ. I think the opposite is true. Love, when we really love one another, love is pointing people to Jesus. Love is turning people from sin. Love is encouraging. Love is building. Love is growing. And if we do these things, if we love one another courageously, it, it will make our church stronger and healthier and more joy-filled. And not just that internally, it will make our church more effective reaching the communities, the neighborhoods, and the city and the world around us if we love one another well and push each other towards Jesus. 
Nehemiah does that. Right? He, he steps in in this final chapter and, and this last thing. Right? His, heart, his heart wasn't to move people away from something. Right? His, his heart wasn't to step in and pull people away from something that was going on. His heart every time was to point people towards someone, towards God. And that should be our heart as well. So my encouragement, my prayer, my hope is that, that as the people of God, that we would love God so much and that we would love one another so much that we would live in a way that points each other constantly back to Jesus. Would you pray with me? We're just going to take a minute with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And I want us to think about what's going on there in this chapter. And I'm going to ask us to, to do, do one thing real quick, just to look in and, and to examine our own hearts. Before we think about anything else, before we think about areas where we might need to go jump in or get involved or talk to people or love people well, let's make sure that we're looking in and examining our hearts. That we're people that live out the Word of God, that, that are, are, have hearts of worship, that are focused on Him, that are pursuing right relationships in our lives. Just ask Him to reveal those areas of your life and to make sure that He is leading you always in the truth of a relationship that comes knowing him. And then second, as we think about this text, let me just ask you a question with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Are you loving well? Are you loving the people in our church family well? Are you loving your family well? Are you loving the believers that are in your life well? Are you helping? Are you encouraging? Are you building? Are you pushing them closer in their love relationship with Jesus? Let me encourage you to do that. When you see things that are out of alignment with God's word, love well enough to step in. Love well enough to say, hey, I care about you. I love you. This isn't an I got you kind of thing. This isn't an I'm better than you kind of thing. This isn't I love you. Thing and God has something great for you, kind of thing where we can point people back to that love relationship with Jesus. So, all of us as a church family, let me encourage us to walk in love filled with, with prayer and grace and truth and with the heart to see people that are close to us walk with Jesus. And it's possible that there's people that are watching online right now, it's possible there are people that are sitting in the room with us right now that are saying, You know what? It's going to be really hard for me to point someone else to Jesus because I don't, I don't know Jesus. I haven't yet stepped into that relationship with him. I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that, that I'm a follower of Christ. If that's you this morning, let me invite you to, before you do anything else, like Nehemiah, like our church family here, let me invite you to place your faith and trust in the one true living God. Let me invite you to say yes to Jesus and begin to walk with that spirit of grace and truth. Just a minute, we're going to stand to pray and we're going to have some prayer partners up at the front on the right side by that cross by our baptistry. And this morning, if you need to pray with someone, if you need to say, hey, you know what? God is directing me back. I need to step into my own life and walk in the way that he's called me to. Maybe God's giving you this prodding right now that you need to step in to someone's life that you care about and say, hey, listen, let's walk with Jesus together and you want to come pray for boldness or maybe, maybe this morning you need to give your life to Jesus and start a relationship with him. Whatever is on your heart, there will be people here to pray with you as we stand and worship.
together. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would be people that live by your word. God, that love one another well enough to speak up and always live and act in a way that points one another back to you. God, we worship you now. In your name we pray. Amen.